Hello and welcome to this uh, first Walks Through Time podcast. I'm currently out and about today, walking up from Ditchling Village in the South Downs, walking up to see Oldlands Windmill, which I have visited briefly before, but uh, I've been invited back to come and have a chat with some of the volunteers to hear a little bit about the history of the place and uh, learn a little bit more, hopefully. I've just passed the uh, Ditchling Museum of Arts and Craft, which uh, looks quite fascinating and obviously might merit a visit back on another occasion. But uh, being a windmill, this is, uh, as all these things tend to be, uh, up on the top of a hill. And it's uh, it's not a long walk so much as uh, it's uphill. It's just over a mile, I think. Uh, but there, there are a number of variations you could take to get up there if you wanted to but I've uh, on this occasion just stuck to the uh, main track which uh, is suitably quiet at the moment uh, I think you can probably drive a car up most of the way if you were so inclined from uh, the ditching end but uh, not all the way I don't think <laughs> one thing I did note uh, on this uh, track up as well on the right hand side there's a field and uh, at one time, there was one of the Royal Observer Corps nuclear bunkers off to the side of it. Um, from what I can tell, having had a brief look on the internet, it is now just a hatch. Nothing else to see, but it is certainly worth knowing that it was there. Uh, and if you want to look a little bit more into that, uh, to take a look at the Subrit website or elsewhere on uh, the Cyclops one. The other advantage, of course, of uh, walking up a hill, particularly if you happen to be in the South Downs, every now and again you see a little gap in the hedge. Uh, I'm just approaching a stile on the left here, which may well do the trick. Yep. If you uh, stop here for a brief moment to catch your breath back after a little bit more of that hill, from here it is a absolutely cracking view along the South Downs, because we're not on the actual South Downs Ridge, you're looking at it from a little bit further north, but from here I can see right the way across to the Jack and Jill windmills, which we might hear a little bit more about later, and uh, no more towns. A few houses, but uh, no towns, so that uh, always makes it more pleasant on a walk. Continuing up the hill after having admired the view and uh, sort of got my breath back, we're back on the level. Uh, we're still on tarmac, which uh, does seem a little bit odd considering where we are, and considering this is uh, effectively a byway, I think, rather than a proper road. But uh, there's some houses on the right hand side, so I think it's after that that the road probably peters out a little bit. The strangest thing about walking up here, I know from the map that we're really, really close to the windmill, but you certainly can't see it. Looking across the uh, the valley, we could see the Jack and Jill windmills on the other, on the South Downs there. Um, and I know that from there, you can look back across to the Oldland Mill on this side. 
but uh, walking through here, I guess because there's so many leaves on the trees still, it's uh, not visible. Now the theory with the uh, Walks Through Time podcast is that it's partly about walking, partly about history, um, often and hopefully normally about a bit of both. And uh, places like the Old Lund Windmill go to prove that sometimes these historic heritage sites are not exactly where you can go in the car, they're not places that you pass, but uh, you have to get out of the car put on some proper shoes and come walking into the countryside a little bit. And as I say, this walk isn't long by any means. As you can tell, I've not actually managed to get that many words out since we started, really. But uh, having parked in Ditchling, uh, it's a free car park in Ditchling, which is helpful, uh, got out there and walked up the hill. Uh, oh, another fantastic view on the left. as uh, another style and the trees clear. Oh, that's uh, quite magnificent. It's, it's a September morning. We've uh, what will probably become known as a long hot summer of 2018. Um, the sun is up and it is a little bit misty because uh, I guess it was quite dewy overnight and the sun is uh, evaporating that well. So we're seeing a little bit of uh, the steam coming off the uh, path where it's, the sun has got to it. Right, having left the tarmac, we're onto a little bit of rougher ground here now. This is uh, a bit narrower than a car, so you certainly can't drive up. Um, and we're definitely getting closer, but I still can't see it. <laughs> Ah, right, now I'm beginning to see a white building just through the trees in front of me. And it looks not like a normal house. And, ah, uh, yep, I can see what I'm going to call sails, but I believe they call them something else here on a windmill. And you wonder how many people have walked along exact same path over the years and suddenly out of the trees comes an absolutely stunning big white windmill clearly very well looked after now even if as I believe it certainly wasn't for most of the 20th century <laughs> but uh, right I shall let's go through the gate and say hello Hello, I'm Fred Mulliday. I'm currently chairman of Oldham Mill Trust. My name is Danny Jarman, and I was the millwright who helped restore the brake wheel and the sweeps. I'm Philip Hicks. I'm chairman of the Sussex Mills Group, and I was also technical advisor to the Oldham Mill project from 2000. So, gentlemen, we're sitting in the glorious sunshine on a very pleasant morning. The first question really is then, what is the Oldland Windmill? Or is it, is it just Oldham Mill? I've seen it written as both. 
Well, of course, it is Oldland Windmill. We simply dropped off the wind, but interestingly, because of water mills are around these days, so we've tended to put the wind back in. So it is, of course, Oldland Windmill. It's a mill that was built around the 1700s. We know it was on the map in 1703, and uh, we have, in fact, had the group of volunteers locally who have actually restored the mill to complete working order now, so we are now running a working windmill. We now mill to order, sell the flour to provide the funding to cover the maintenance costs. This mill was originally established to provide flour for the two local villages, which in those days, around the 1700s, were Ditchling and Kima. Hassocks didn't exist, of course. Hassocks came with the railway in about 1840, so uh, many people forget that. So it provided flour for those villages, Ditchling and Kima. And, and of course, we know that uh, bread was the staple diet then, so it was critically important. And uh, they were typical in that most villages or pairs of villages had their own windmill in those days. And at what stage did a renovation take place? It's, it's not been in this prime condition um, since the beginning, has it? No, not at all. Uh, we go right through till um, the working life of the mill is right through to 1912. It was abandoned around 1912 when, of course, the bottom had fallen out of windmilling because of these newfangled engines that had come along. And being on private land, it was a privately owned mill rented to the tenant millers. So being on private land and fortuitously being well off the beaten track, it sat here rotting and rusting, really turned into a time capsule. And Essentially, we go right through to 1980 when the local authority decided it was a dangerous structure and was about to fall down. And either repair work had to be done, serious repair work or restoration, or it had to be dismantled. Otherwise, it would be a danger to people walking past in the, the lane that passes it. And at that stage, the Hassocks Amenity Association local village uh, that now exists decided that um, they would support the restoration of the mill. And that was when the story really begins. So, Philip, how does Oldland sit in the Sussex windmill landscape? Well, Oldland Windmill is regarded as the oldest regularly working windmill in Sussex. There aren't that many windmills left in Sussex that are in working condition. There are a few. None of them are actually commercial mills. They're all run by volunteers and are only open on an occasional basis. And they're mill when there's people available to operate them and obviously when there's wind. There are about uh, 12 or so windmills left in Sussex and they're in various different conditions uh, those are the ones that are open to the public but uh, they're not all, obviously not all in working order. So Oldland is one of the better ones dare you say in this company? Oh yes certainly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the beauty of Oldland it's across the valley from Jill Windmill both are the same type of mill but there's a hundred years difference in their age and if you look at the mills you can see the difference Oldland Mill, they have to wind it by pushing it round. Jill has got a fan that does it automatically. Jill has got automatic shutters, whereas Oldland, you've got to set them by hand. First class example in one valley. That sounds almost as if it's a competitive thing. It's not competitive at all, really. It's just that one's 100 years older, so things are done differently. I would put a different slant on it to Danny, <laughs> purely in the sense that I see it as great value because when we applied for the, the only major grant we've ever got from government was from DEFRA 
in 2003 where we had a grant for £62,500 to actually restore, replace the sweeps, brake wheel and one or two other key issues. But the point we stress to them is exactly the point Danny's made, that here, only a mile and a half apart, you've got a very primitive post mill and you've got the dual, which is a very advanced post mill. There are very few more advanced than that. So you've got 101 subtle differences between the two. So educationally, you've got this fantastic resource to compare one with the other. Defra bought that argument. There's undoubtedly the reason they gave us the funding. I think another thing which went towards it in its favour was the fact that it still got the gear in to run by engine. Very few mills in England these days have got equipment to run off engine. And that's something that I have noticed, certainly from your website, that you like to do. We, we, we've got it all geared up for this and try once a year to get a steamer in it to, to actually run it. To try and be self-sufficient, they got a small diesel engine which they said was going to run the mill. Uh, well, unfortunately, it doesn't run the mill. It's got enough guts to turn the gears, but not to turn the stones. So that don't happen. But this is still a work in progress, obviously. We want a bigger engine, Danny's right. So we're still looking for a larger engine to demonstrate that alternative. So, so in many ways, that does prove the point that the amount of power there is in the wind to start with, that if a modern diesel engine doesn't do it, the, the, the old technology does. Well, small. The, the engine we've got is three horsepower. It's enough to turn the gear in, but it's not enough to turn the stone when it's engaged. Exactly. The mill, or the windmill itself, produces five horsepower. So that leaves us deficient of two horsepower. But it's only one of three or four mm. in the country that have got this mechanism still intact. And it's the only post mill surviving with uh, the steam engine mechanism. So at what point did steam come into the equation then? Did lots of windmills go that way? A fair number did, yes. As I say, this is the only surviving post mill with steam engine drive. Very few post mills, because of the way the mill stands are driven, very few post mills had a, a steam engine drive. Steam power was introduced into mills. I've seen references to steam engines attached to windmills even back in the 1820s, so it was quite early, but there weren't that many. It became more common as we got to the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. Danny, <laughs> we were told earlier on by Philip there that... Uh, there aren't many windmills left. How do you make a living with not many windmills? Is there enough work to do, or was there enough work to do, to keep you going? Over recent years, there's been more work we can actually cope with. Lots and lots of mills are setting up their own society. And somewhere along the line, they need a bit of professional help. Whether it's to set out a sweep, construct a brake wheel, or make tentering gear. So. All these places need help. They also need heavy lifting gear. And we've got just that. So was that how you got involved here at Oldland? Uh, no, not really. At the time, I thought I was going to retire. And the only interest I got was Jill Windmill up on the hill. But I heard that Oldland had lost their millwright in sad circumstances. And that DEFRA wouldn't let them get on on their own. So it meant they had to get somebody from somewhere. So I said I'd come up here and show them how to set it out. DEFRA wasn't happy with that, so it meant that I had to then become a member of Oldland Windmill and help them with the restoration work. And how long ago was that? I think it's somewhere around the year 2000 that it kicked off. 
And um, here we are, 2018, and I'm still ill. Don't do too much these days, I'm crowding 80. So what is involved on a day-to-day -day maintenance thing in a, in a place like this? You need to make sure every time before your meal that the teeth are tight, that the brake wheel is secure, that the shutters are opening and closing properly, that the wind shafts, front and rear bearings are lubricated. I mean, you, you wouldn't be running the windmill as a milleur, presumably, but it's, it's the maintenance and keeping things running which would be a millwright's job. The, the miller would do his own maintenance. You've got to bear in mind the wind only blows one day in four. The three days he gets off, he could carry out the maintenance, move the grain around, check the mice traps and all the rest of it. And then bring in a millwright when it's a, a bigger job, needs more, some advice? The miller would only, the miller or the owner of the mill or whatever, would only bring in a millwright when it was something too heavy or too big for him that he couldn't cope with it. And is that what you've done here at Oldland, Fred? Yes, certainly it is. Um, I think it, it's very interesting that what Danny could add to the sort of team, because I, like one or two other members of our volunteers team, a mechanical engineer, I'm a chartered mechanical engineer. My work in industry was on structural design engineering. Probably a very good place to recruit uh, people interested well, in this kind of thing. <laughs> precisely so, but uh, clearly I had no knowledge at all of windmills per se. So my knowledge of structures could be used for checking safety and everything else, but I wouldn't have the sort of expertise that Danny's picked up over the years with his mill writing. And the example of that would be when we were setting out the sweeps, because few people realise the sweeps are not flat. There's a very gentle curvature to the sweeps, so the jointing, for example, is not simple. Every mortise and tenon joint at a slightly different angle. Now, how do you set that out when you're actually constructing it? Well, it's exactly that sort of process that Danny had at his fingertips, and that's what he fed into the, the organisation. So although we had Philip, who has already been said, was our, our technical expert. Philip has got an encyclopedic knowledge of mills and the different sorts of mills, different mechanisms and what have you. But even Philip wouldn't necessarily have that setting out sort of procedure at his fingers. It's any more than I would. And Danny, how many times before Oldland do you think you might have done that? Where, where did all that experience come from? I think it came over my working life. I've made 32 sweeps of different mills in the southeast of England. They've all got different angles of weather. They've all got different size bays. Some of them, all the shutters are one size. Some of them, there's a particular one, Thorpe Ness in Suffolk, where there's five different size shutters on one suite. Takes a lot of fiddling to get it right. And is there a reason that they're all different? Or is it just when you build a windmill originally, it's just whichever design you think is no. appropriate? No, in this particular case, it was a small dumpy mill and it was designed for lifting water. So it needed to have a low torque, but not necessarily a high speed. All right, so there's, there does appear to be a lot more to windmills than meets the eye. And when you see, you just assume big, big wavy things that fly around, but there is actually a lot of technology there as well. There is a lot of technology in it, because if you stand under a sweep at one end and look at it, you'll find the end that's close to you is five degrees and up at the hill it's 15 degrees. The idea being is that 80 mile an hour it stops the tip from stalling. So that's that's aeroplane technology there isn't it? Yes. Presumably <laughs> some of this comes into the big wind turbines and things oh, we yeah, see today as well. Most definitely. There's a fair bit of interchange between the, most Sussex mills through the Sussex Mills Group. The Sussex Mills Group can 
source gears, wheels, bits and pieces which the individual can't. Often, I can think of a couple of cases, West Blatchington, uh, Worthing, where members of other mills have gone and actually helped them do the jobs because they've got the knowledge that's required. And so, Philip, as chairman of the Sussex Mills Group, is it a coordinating of this knowledge that presumably there must be very much more knowledge in certain places than others? Oh yes, certainly. Uh, we do have regular meetings where uh, attendees uh, from various different mills turn up and they can discuss technical matters or any particular problems that arise during milling or during mills opening and that sort of thing. It was particularly valuable to us at Oldland in the early days in the 1980s and 1990s and uh, beyond when almost universally the volunteers involved did not have any knowledge of windmills so Philip was the exception so clearly Philip was able to bring in experts when we wanted them even before Danny was involved to answer specific questions. So it, it, is the interest in windmills something that has actually continued or is it now building back up again as perhaps has been suggested? Uh, yes, certainly th things certainly seem far more successful now than they were a decade or two decades ago. Uh, numbers of visitors and that sort of thing. Some mills are struggling a bit for volunteers. It's not something that uh, tends to happen at Oldland. We seem to be very good at recruiting new people. I think that's because there's a lot going on and things are, are, are well coordinated. Actually, building on something that Danny said, uh, all these different mills no two windmills were identical so all of the windmills that have been lost there were hundreds of windmills and hundreds of windmills across the country everyone that's been lost was irreplaceable and so a lot of the interest uh, certainly among enthusiasts comes from where each mill is slightly different and although the principles are the same the different designs and the different techniques of overcoming the same problems there's always varieties on that sort of thing and is it also because it's a green technology? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, being green is now very fashionable and that is certainly feeding into the, uh, the, the, uh, the historic windmills and our, that, that part of our heritage. 30 years ago, 35 years ago actually, when we first started at Jill, there wasn't another mill in Sussex which was actually turn its sweeps or be worked on. Mm. And we got in really on the ground floor which I feel helped us, and down through the years, I mean, look at Mike Pete, he goes all over the bloody place helping them build this bit, make that bit. <laughs> and even now, he still does bits for Jack. Mm, yes. He, he made the uh, fan blades. Mm, yes. He serviced the wind shaft. So presumably, if a windmill doesn't have any of the workings there, it would be almost impossible to put it back as it was? Did, uh, were, were there ever any written uh, plans or whatever of these things? Some, yeah, I mean, sometimes they, there's no real proper records from when these mills were built and when they were uh, reworked and uh, when the, the old-time millwrights worked on them. But in later years, people have rec made records of the interiors. There have been mill enthusiasts for, for centuries, and so there people used to take photographs and would make notes and take measurements, and so those sorts of records can be used to reconstruct the interiors accurately. I mean, it is possible anyway to design machinery and that sort of thing from scratch but in the interests of, of uh, you know, historical accuracy you do try to replicate what was there originally. 
I'm Peter Shepherd. I'm the volunteer archivist for Oldland Mill. As far as the archives go, are there lots of records of windmills such as Oldland? The early years, as far as Oldland goes, there's not a lot. Uh, there is some. The problem was that uh, in West Sussex, where most of it is kept, there's also a large tranche of it in East Sussex because the boundary changed. And so, I mean, this uh, the site goes back to the Abergavenny days. And uh, so there's a long journey between Chichester and Lewis to go if you want to do anything like it's that. It's known where to look for things, isn't it? Exactly like that, yes. And in fact, I, I tried to, um, in West Sussex to find the records down there. And a lot of the, uh, the olden stuff, the very early stuff, is literally written in medieval English. And how so, is your medieval English? <laughs> <laughs> not at all good. <laughs> but I found some things out. But up until about 1930, we've got some things that are recorded now because the people holes, the, uh, the engineer contractors who did a lot of work then, are still, or were still about now. And uh, they could be contacted through Danny um, and uh, they could probably do something. But a lot of the work now is, is done by volunteers. So delving into these archives, what have you found? I found that uh, there's a long history dating back to 1542 for the Turner family. Right, and that's, that's that, quite a long time before this was, place was built, exactly, though, surely. Exactly, yes. It's, um, it's a whole estate belonging to the Turners, including this mill site. And this is plot number 202 right. on the old maps. And when it was built originally, the mill, it was just an ordinary post mill with the trestle that you see here and the tree in the middle. That is one solid oak tree. And... Uh, we don't know the exact age of it. We did try to get the age dated with dendrochronology, uh, but it failed, unfortunately, because there's nothing similar um, that's been researched in, in that line. The, the, the wrong kind of wood. It's uh, the wrong, yeah, it, the wrong age, yeah. basically. There's still inquiries going on about it now, but that's an oak tree. It was chopped down and made into that shape goes up into the middle of the uh, the body and it's on a pivot so there's that and then these trestles you see they're a newer oak well they were redone in 1985 I think it was by hand and they were I've got pictures of the people the volunteers posting these posts through that window there and uh, yes a lot of work went on then and uh, they were then put on these brick pillars. So you've still got the original trestle there, and you've still got the original mill on top of that, all in new wood, because a lot of it was rotten. So, yes, that's, uh, that's the job that's been done. It's a complete rebuild. And how has it changed in the last 100 years? It's changed... Um, not a lot, but there's one or two things that have been done. Uh, originally, it didn't have the roundhouse. It didn't have the roof above it. It just had the trestle, the supports for the trestle, and the mill body in the old wood, which has since gone. Also, there was a wooden wind shaft, which went from front to back. There was no iron. It was all made in wood. 
and of course that had to be renewed and we think that was done in about 1892 the reason I say that is because on the tailpost which I don't think you can see it from here there is a there is a date that's been carved on the post uh, 1892 always so. good to find clues like that isn't it <laughs> that's right yeah but I don't know what that means except that it's 1892 obviously somebody made the post then but where how that relates to the mill I don't know so when the renovations were starting here in the 80s 90s and coming on to now had anyone tried to restore it before then? Yes, in the 1930s, Holes, the uh, uh, agricultural engineers, um, they had some wooden scaffolding put up and they did a lot of the woodwork that needed to be done at that time. And, um, and they tried to get the sweeps turning again, but immediately they realised they hadn't examined the actual sweeps themselves and one of the sweeps fell off and dug in the ground and I've got a picture of that to show that that's what happened. So then at that point the restoration project ceased? It, at that time yes but then they still did some more work including some work which was promoted by a chap called Ferguson who built the housing estate down here and he put £200 into it and eventually it was got going again. But then it was turned into a museum uh, where people could come up and visit. So is there anything that you're looking for in the archives now that you have not been able to find, you really want to find? I'd like some detail about the older age of the mill. Uh, anything back from 1703 forward to 1930. If there's anything out there and... Um, I would find it hard to find apart from in the East and West Sussex records office, but it's understanding what I see. <laughs> Danny, of the windmills that you've seen then, going back over the last 20, 30 years, say, has the landscape of windmills changed in that world? Um, possibly in, in some ways. In A lot of people use steel instead of timber now. You get a major timber fail in a mill. Instead of cutting timber, they put steel in it because it's cheaper and more long-lasting, which is fine. It keeps the mill standing up, but it don't do much for its credibility as an ancient windmill. <laughs> I mean, Rottingdean. To look at it from the outside, it looks like a windmill. It's just a steel yard inside. But if it, that steel yard wasn't there, that mill would be gone. So what's the best thing to do about it all? I, I think you've got to let mills be saved however people can do it. Because it's all right being traditionalist and saying, yeah, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Somebody's got to pay for all this. And, and how do we feel about perhaps people converting windmills into houses and things? It maintains the fabric of, uh, of the mill and it'll keep it forever. But, you know, obviously the likes of myself and Fred would prefer to see uh, a windmill there. I think it's preferable to having it demolished and a completely new housing estate built if the mill can be converted into a house, but certainly it's not ideal. I mean, certainly if, if you look at Ordnance Survey maps when you're out and about walking and things, it mentions quite a few windmills. And you do your walk and you think, oh, I'm going to see a lovely windmill just like this one, you know, sunshiny, <laughs> everything. But actually it's just, you know, 
quite a small brick building perhaps. Yeah, Absolutely right. I mean, I, I always stress to people when I'm showing visitors around, don't lose sight of the fact that they're machines. You're walking into a machine. It's not a house. It's a machine. An industrial place. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of places which they call windmills, whereas in actual fact there's probably only a post or in the case of South Chaley, there's just a brick, just a brick base. There's nothing else there at all. There's absolutely no chance of that ever being rebuilt. Whereas North Shady, which has got a smock mill, it's there and they managed to keep it together. You can't restore all of them. But at least if, if, if it's the site of a windmill, it does actually show the network of uh, Sussex windmills and mills mm. where they were. Mm. Oh, certainly. It's always interesting, or certainly I think it's always interesting to see ruins and remains of old windmills. And it's amazing just how much uh, historical detail you can get from just those, those ruins. Well, and they all have a story. Presumably it gets to a certain oh, point. Absolutely. It's not economical anymore and it shuts down. Mm, oh, absolutely, yes. And also a lot of information can be picked up from the early day millwrights. Mm. Like the bloke who built Crossing Hand Mill was the same bloke who built Jewel Mill. And the techniques he used in one is in the other one as well. So you'll get a family, Medhurst. There was a whole family. And they made a point of marrying Miller's daughters to keep it all in the family. And this mill, older mill here, the buck is very similar to Jill, but it's not built by the same bloke. But Jill and Crossing Hand, built by the same bloke. In fact, when we wanted parts for Jill, we copied them from crossing so around the country there's going to be quite a bit of that and eventually you're going to get things that are not what they should be because they're built by <laughs> built in different areas so we, we say there about parts being copied things looking the same things being made by the same people but how did the technology actually develop over time and we, and there are of course different kinds of mill as well aren't there Yes, uh, the technology did evolve right from the uh, from medieval times through to when windmills finally went out of business, and it was like anything where uh, the technology would evolve and people would find better ways of doing things and uh, cheaper ways of doing things and longer lasting ways of doing things and uh, making mills more convenient to run and making mills safer uh, in some cases safer to run. And the, the, the different kinds of mill, I mean, the, the, what, what kind is Oldland here? Oldland Windmill is a post mill, and it's called a post mill because the whole mill is built around a central wooden post, and that way the whole body and the sweeps can face into the wind, no matter which direction the wind blows from. The other two main types of windmill are the smock mill and the tower mill. The smock mill has a timber tower on a brick or stone base, and it has a timber cap and it's just the cap that revolves so the sweeps will face into the wind and with a tower mill it's very much like a smock mill except the the whole tower is of brick or stone and again it has a cap that uh, will revolve and the sweeps will face into the wind. Yeah, the important bit is that you can move it around depending certainly. on what the wind's playing. <laughs> yes certainly yeah otherwise the, the wind's always blowing from a different direction so obviously if it's just built to, f to face one direction it's just fixed to face one direction then uh, the mill can't work and when you're looking after an old mill like this is it how it was left when it stopped working that is how you try to restore it to we developed a, a very deliberate policy that our target was to get the mill back to the state it was in 1912 when it was last used commercially. Hence we did fit in the external engine drive we referred to earlier. 
and that was a very deliberate policy because we knew that was there in 1912 and was being used in 1912. So where we've had to replace components, bearing in mind Danny's earlier comments about materials, we have, wherever humanly possible, gone back to the same type of timber, for example. There are 12 different types of wood actually used in Oldland for different reasons, be it oak, elm, cedar, etc., etc. We have slavishly followed those types of timber where we've had to replace. But that's the approach we've taken. And is it easy to still get those same bits of wood? It's, it's not easy, and indeed we have run into a difficulty because we have discovered that modern sorts of timber don't necessarily have the same mechanical properties as they did 200 years ago. The example would be pitch pine, where we have discovered to our cost that although pitch pine was used for some key elements in the sweeps, modern pitch pine does not have the longevity that pitch pine had one or two hundred years ago. Probably because it's now very fast thrown, it's forced, and it changes the mechanical properties. And is there a way that you get round that? Well, the way we have adopted is, in fact, to use an engineer. We're, we're experimenting. We've only actually started this this year. We have tried replacing those components in pitch pine with a material called acquire, which is an engineered wood, which is starting from a, a genuine wood base, but it's treated in various ways to give it a great resistance to rotting in particular. And we're really doing a bit of a pilot to see whether it's going to be more satisfactory in terms of longevity compared with pitch pine. So technology is still moving on, even today. It is, and the argument is that in, in the 1700s, they would have used whatever technology was available. They would have used what materials were used at the time. So I think it's perfectly legitimate to move forward, which is very different to saying we replace everything with high-strength aluminium alloy. <laughs> saying then about how things were different a couple of hundred years ago, Danny, how has the millwright's job changed in that time? Just needing to deal more with metal? Um, I think they still try and stick with uh, timber as much as possible. I think possibly one of the biggest changes is the use of tools. You can do in a day with an electric plane where it'll take you a week with a hand plane. And, and there's no advantage to using a hand plane uh, for added authenticity or anything daft like that? Well, no, not really, because you can cheat with an electric plane. <laughs> you can grind the blade to a curve. So it looks like the work has been done with the nads. <laughs> <laughs> Not guilty, of course. <laughs> but that does add to uh, the, the authentic way yeah. that wood was worked. Yeah, because to, to get an 8 by 8 timber and to get it smooth in the 1700s was totally different to the way of doing it now. You'd have had to use the nads. Whereas now you just got a 6-inch plane, two passes, and you're there. So the situation with Oldland... The people who are here today, everyone's a volunteer? Everybody's a volunteer here today, but the, the nature of volunteering has changed quite subtly. The restoration took place between 1980 and, let's say, 2015. By about 2015, we had a working mill and we were producing flour regularly. So the work changed quite subtly from reconstruction, restoration, over to maintenance and running a working mill. Now, frankly, some people are not particularly interested in running a working mill. They're far more interested in the restoration side. and so The, the, the big project. Precisely. And so inevitably there'll be one or two, but very few, one or two people might well drift away and move over to another major project of that sort. 
And it leaves us with the challenge of ensuring we do have sufficient volunteers who are interested in the maintenance site and running of the mill. And we have been very fortunate, as you've seen today around us, you've seen the number of volunteers we've got here on a typical Thursday, which is the working day throughout the whole year for the Trust. And we've managed to maintain that, but it, it takes an effort. We all know that getting volunteers, keeping volunteers is a challenge in this day and age. And we've been aware of that challenge, so we consciously try and address it. But it is, as I say, it's subtly changed in terms of the nature of the work we do. So you're always looking for people who are keen and interested? We are always looking for people and of course we're looking for younger people, inevitably, because many of us, not including myself, but many people have been on the restoration from the very beginning and they are still here, still with us. We have people over 80 years of age still working here regularly. But obviously we want to start replacing people at the other end of the chain and so we're very consciously doing things like ensuring we have games for children on our open days, very deliberately to try and get the younger generations involved. We are currently toying with the idea of having a Saturday, perhaps once a month as a working day, quite literally so that we can attract people who are still of working age. And we know there are a few in the villages who've already expressed interest. So it's a challenge, but we're at least we're aware of that challenge and try to respond to it. So you say there you weren't involved from the beginning. How did you start? Well... My children were, strangely enough. Um, the end part of my career, I worked at the University of Brighton. At one stage, I was the head of mechanical engineering department. The first I heard about the mill was when I was asked to, to make a couple of metal components for the mill in my department. And obviously, I agreed very happily. And at that stage, my children were in the guides and scouts, and the guides and scouts were involved working those days at the weekends on Saturday and Sunday. So they were up here doing some of the early restoration work in the 1990s and the early 2000s. I was asked to get involved to try and attract funding because around the early 2000s it was very clear that there was going to be a lot of costs involved because bear in mind by 1996 the mill had been totally dismantled so the reconstruction started in 1996 and by the year 2000 the enormity of the task was dawning on people including the costs so clearly there had to be some applications for grants and I was asked originally to get involved to sit, simply see if I could help get some grants because I had experience in the academic world of applying for research grants and what have you. Uh, so I knew the sort of games you had to play. So I got involved 2003 precisely to develop that sort of grant which we put to DEFRA and fortunately we managed to get the grant for £62,500 in 2003 to replace the sweeps, replace the Blake wheel and to replace one or two other key beams that were damaged inside that needed either reinforcing or replacing. And it's always been quite a community project, hasn't it? Well, it has. All the work you see has been done by volunteers. And there's no doubt the strength of this project has been the strength of the volunteer team. We've been very fortunate. We've managed to maintain the engagement, that's the key word, the engagement of the village because I think everyone recognises unless you keep volunteers engaged, they will drift away naturally. They'll go to other things that are more interesting. That is a conscious effort has to be used to actually do that. It's not something that happens naturally. It needs to be worked at. And we have managed to keep that engagement going in all sorts of ways, with open days, for example. And we now have a total of seven during the year. We're open on the first Sunday of every month between April and October, every year, which amounts to seven. 
Three of those will be what we call special event days where we do something rather different. We either focus on having Morris dancers up here or we have a number of choirs and singing groups up here or we have a traction engine up here driving the mill using the external drive which we know is a very unusual feature now. So by making those special event days we do try and attract even people who are familiar with the mill. It's still something to bring them up here and keep them engaged and revisiting to see what's happened in the meantime? Precisely so, yes. I mean, despite the fact, as I've already stressed, we, we are focusing naturally on maintenance now, there are still subtle changes still going on. We're still changing things. We've found that something we did perhaps could be done better, we're replacing it. Or as I've mentioned earlier, the timber, we found a particular timber is not lasting as it should, so we need to replace that. So it's an ongoing process, inevitably. So, Danny, these ongoing maintenance tasks, what, what is it that when you come up here you're, you're looking for? Is it a list of jobs in your head that you know what needs doing or is it inspecting a lot? These, these days I tend to help whoever's doing anything with the timber side of it. I tend to work with a couple of the blokes. I either get involved to some degree or shout the odds about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I know this last summer you've uh, spruced up, is possibly the polite way of putting it, the sweeps on here. Was that a, a big task? The repair of the sweeps was quite a major job because some of the longitudinal timbers, the uplongs and hemlasts, were rotten in places. It wasn't practical to join two-inch square timber, so the whole length has to be replaced and it's quite an involved job because you've got to set it up so you follow the twist of the sweep so you maintain the shape. Is this something that takes more planning than doing or is it the, the practicalities of the job? I think it's a bit of both because there's lots of people involved in the job who've never done it before and you need to make sure that they know exactly what they're doing otherwise you're going to waste a hell of a lot of timber. <laughs> <laughs> and is it on jobs like this that also the Mills Group comes in with with that experience uh, well all the mills across Sussex have these sorts of problems and the this sort of need for maintenance and they're always looking for new volunteers and I think as we've already heard that there's no need for volunteers to have any sort of prior knowledge or expertise that they can learn as they go along and as, as long as there's someone who does know what's well, going quite, on yes <laughs> yes I mean it, it is a, a I think it's a learning curve for everybody actually the grant we got from DEFRA, interestingly enough, was called the Rural Enterprise Scheme at the time. It no longer exists. But the purpose of that scheme was, of course, to encourage rural enterprise. And, of course, the craft skills that we're teaching people here is a perfect example, which is exactly why they saw it as a, an ideal project for them to support. Yeah, and do people come in with these skills, or do people go away with new skills? Uh, both. We can think of examples of both. I mean, we've got many people up here. I think of one, without mentioning a name, who spent his entire life in the insurance world, pushing pieces of paper around. He had never lifted a chisel or hammer in his life. Well, he now boasts of the fact that he can make his own picture frames and everything else. You know, he has learnt those skills here and he openly admits that, you know, so he's thoroughly enjoyed his time here because of that. The other extreme is we've had people literally walk in off the lane announcing themselves as qualified blacksmiths please could they get involved yeah exactly so it works both ways the more you can spread it about the better it's going to be for everybody and the more the chance of it lasting it's really not practical for me to say that i can make sweeps and i can make shutters and i can do this we need other people to do it i need a rest
<laughs> and for that reason, uh, we have very deliberately kept video records of virtually all the processes we've been through. We've got hundreds of hours of videos of the reconstruction of the mill, so that in 10, 20, 50 years' time, assuming we can still play those videos, <laughs> we will be able to demonstrate to people the techniques used. And I think that is very important. The classic one there was the brake wheel. Gordon, who's the photographer up here, took seven and a half hours of film of making the brake wheel. And he really didn't know what to do with it, having taken it. So I took it off him and spent one winter making a film that lasted 45 minutes. I got the knowledge to put it together, he got the skill to take the film. And that's a film that's available to anybody in the Sussex Mills Group. And it's that kind of thing that even it just inspires someone to work on a mill of any shape or form. It gives them an idea of what skills are needed and how to do it. I mean, how do you lay out to make a 12-foot diameter circle? Unless somebody tells you or shows you, you're not going to know. Through the film that Gordon made and I edited, anybody in Sussex can do it. Lots of these films are available on the Society's website, but the rest of them you're going to find attributed to Gordon King, Danny Jarman, one or two others, and you'll find them on YouTube. You can get to them, many of them, through the Mill website, Oldland Mill website, which is www.oldlandwindmill.co.uk. Simply punch in there and you'll see all the alternatives you can look up. Another aspect that was very important when DEFRA were deciding to whether to award our grant or not was the fact that we convinced them that being only a mile and a half from Jill Mill, um, we could provide tremendous educational opportunity here, not only to show the difference and the way technology had marched on in the 100, 120 years between us being built and Jill being constructed, but within Oldland Mill itself, or within any mill, you can actually use it as an extraordinary curriculum enrichment opportunity because you can show a group of youngsters round, you can talk about mathematics, physics, you can talk about social history, you name it. There are examples in the mill to talk about. And in that, we do have links with the local schools and we do have groups of school children up here, together with guide scouts, etc, etc. And again, it's a deliberate policy to try and get young people engaged, so hopefully they will at least grow up with an understanding and empathy towards these sort of structures. And with that kind of interest in mind, Philip, how did you become interested in windmills? Uh, it's an interest I've had from a very early age. Uh, my parents were very keen on the countryside, so as a child I was taken out into the countryside a lot, and uh, windmills were one of the things that I really seemed to latch on to, and it's an interest that's grown from then. As Fred has just said, the, there's an awful lot of different strands to the interests surrounding windmills, such as social history and uh, agriculture. And, but the thing that really interested me was uh, I'm interested in structures, and windmills, of course, are very very uh, interesting structures and also the mechanics of them. And that interest has led you deeper and deeper by the sound of it? It certainly has, yes. Uh, I've, um, I started out as a teenager actually helping out at various different mills in Sussex with uh, open days and um, guiding people, showing people around. And I also got involved up here at quite an early age with the hands-on work on, on restoring the mill. So is it nice to be able to say that you have been involved with such a project? I mean, th th this is the thing that... Yes, uh, yes certainly, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's a really great feeling, actually, to see how the mill, yes. Very satisfying to see how the mill has changed over the years that I've been involved with it. And is it something that now, with 
things like the internet, it's easier to share that interest? Yes, it is. There is a group on Facebook called Windmill Hoppers where windmill enthusiasts uh, from all over the place are signed up to this particular group and are sharing information all the time and photographs and uh, bits of information that they've found out and various different events and even the tragedies at mills where there's storm damage and that sort of thing and that's all being shared and that's actually has been uh, a useful tool in in getting more younger people interested. This interest is worldwide it is not at all unusual for us on open days to have someone stroll in from Australia saying they've been watching the progress of this mill for the last 10 years on the internet. And it's fascinating the way you just don't know who is watching what's going on. Talking about Australia, there's a windmill in Perth, which is the same as the smock mills in Kent, built by Kentish bloke in Perth, Australia. Ah, we all know where he is and what he's doing. <laughs> the internet takes you everywhere. If I jump quickly on a hobby horse, the downside of the internet, of course, is that we all know that some youngsters now spend their entire lives on communications of that sort rather than getting practical experience of doing anything like canoeing, building go-karts, mending motorcycles, etc., etc. And there's an undoubted deficiency in getting young people who are interested in and able to work with practical tools. This is a very serious worry. So people who are young engineers, I mean, coming down to see places like this would be great, wouldn't they? Absolutely, yes. I think it's absolutely critical. I've always been a great devotee of sandwich courses. I I passionately believe there should not be anything like a full-time degree course. Every single degree course of any description of any subject should include real-life experience. And engineering is the extreme example of that. It's absolutely essential that so-called engineers have got real experience of the real world. And is that anything you do about that here with your background at the university? Yes, we have had student projects working, final year engineering degree projects working on aspects of the mill here. Um, not as many as I would have liked, but we have had some, certainly. And it's something we deliberately do try and push forward, yes. So if I am interested and I'm walking around and I happen to be walking past and I see someone over the fence... Simply talk to them because... Uh, Thursdays throughout the entire year is the volunteers working day. We will always find volunteers up here working on every Thursday throughout the year and we encourage people to actually come in and talk to us and if it's appropriate, we're not doing something that makes it inappropriate, we will show people around and many people following that casual visit will end up by supporting us in some way, becoming members of the trust or indeed becoming volunteers. The final thing is to stand in the mill body on a Sunday, well, any time when the mill's actually running, just stand there and listen to it. You hear the creaks and groans, you hear the shutters rattle, you hear the brake rubbing, and you know it's alive. Yeah, it's great. They share that characteristic of steam engines. They do seem to have a personality. They seem to have a life when they're actually running. It's quite fascinating. I think I'd put a very long-term perspective on. This mill worked for over 200 years commercially, It then sat here resting for 100 years. We've put it back into working order. We want it to be working for another 200 years. That's the challenge. How do we actually do that? Well, many thanks to uh, the chaps at uh, the Oldland Mill there. Uh, I have definitely learned a little bit more of the history and definitely learned something else as well. It uh, makes you think, of course, that these days windmills are just sitting around and all very pleasant and all very heritage, but of course they were industrial, weren't they? And uh, it was someone's business. 
And when we sort of think, oh, well, it's shut in 1912 or whatever year, uh, that was probably someone either going out of business or something happening which was actually stopping the uh, production of flour at this site. Now, as with the walk up the hill, there are several options of uh, ways to get back to Ditchling, depending on uh, how long you've got, how much of a walk you want, whether it's started to rain yet. Luckily today, it has been jolly pleasant the whole time. More likely to come away with sunburn than uh, get wet. And I've decided that uh, a little bit of a loop is uh, a good plan. There's uh, one option which would be down at the other side of the Oldland Mill, down to Kima and back along what's marked on the Ordnance Survey map as a Roman road, course of. But I've decided to turn right, effectively, and uh, just uh, go back down the hill a little bit through, or past Court Gardens Farm, and then uh, pop into uh, that uh, field on the way back down the hill. See if I can see any sign of the ROC post.